Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Eric. And I'm Jim. And this is Speaking of Race. Today, we want to talk more about how this burst of DNA sequencing over the last 25 years has shaped how we think about race. Jim, why don't you tell us what the impact of sequencing was on ideas about race? There are a couple of things that we need to say to clear the decks to talk about race in the Genome Project. First off, as we've talked about before, there was a growing understanding that race was a cultural construction during the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s. At the same time that this was going on, there was enhancements in genetic technology occurring that allowed us to get a more fine-grained look at people's genes. And during the late 1980s, there was a push among geneticists to get major government funding to sequence the human genome. They and they got it. They finally did. In 1990, they got $3 billion committed for NIH funding to sequence the human genome. The process of getting there, though, involved hyping what they could actually do with that information way beyond any possible actual execution of the Human Genome Project. And in doing that, one of the things that happened was that people's expectations about what we would be able to say based on DNA sequences grew and grew and grew as the hype grew and grew and grew to get the funding. And of course, during the 1990s, they had to continue the funding, and this is when the actual sequencing was going on. And so what happened was that people began to expect us to be able to explain humans based on the DNA sequence that they got out of it. Right. And so all of us have to hype our research when we're applying for research money, right? We all have to say this research is going to impact the world in such a way and change public health, in my case, in such a way, et cetera, et cetera. And that's part of the process, thinking about what that research could be and could do. But in this case, it really sort of seemed to hit a chord with the public imagination about science and what science can do, right? And so people got super excited about this, perhaps overly excited. Absolutely. That's a really good way to put it. I think it's telling that at the, the hearing to get funding in front of Congress, the Human Genome Project directors at the Department of Energy, right? That was where it first fell under. And they brought in Jim Watson to testify in front of Congress. And I, I think... Um, Watson of Watson and Crick fame. That's right. Watson of <laughs> Watson of Crick fame. Anyway, he, he made these promises in front of Congress that by understanding the Human Genome Project, we would be able to unlock all these new secrets about human health and maybe even um, understanding why we die. And I guess the hint, hint, hint there is that maybe we can stop that process of dying or we'll something. We'll never die. One of the other things that came out of this process, though, during the sequencing effort was that there was a tremendous amount of optimism growing among the cultural constructivists of race to actually believe that maybe this would demonstrate once and for all that race didn't have biological validity in humans. And there was a lot of optimism about this. And, in fact, this is something that was voiced at the White House announcement of the completion of the first draft of the Human Genome Project on June 26, 2000, at a ceremony hosted by President Clinton. And here's what President Clinton had to say about race and the human genome. Increasing knowledge of the human genome must never change the basic belief on which our ethics, our government, our society are founded. All of us are created equal, entitled to equal treatment. 
under the law. After all, I believe one of the great truths to emerge from this triumphant expedition inside the human genome is that in genetic terms, all human beings, regardless of race, are more than 99.9% the same. What that means is that modern science has confirmed what we first learned from ancient fates. The most important fact of life on this earth is our common humanity. My greatest wish on this day for the ages is that this incandescent truth will always guide our actions as we continue to march forth in this, the greatest age of discovery ever known. And also, Craig Venter, uh, who was competing with the government for sequencing the human genome. He's the founder of Solera Genomics, and he had this to say about race at that ceremony. The method used by Solera has determined the genetic code of five individuals. We have sequenced the genome of three females and two males who have identified themselves as Hispanic, Asian, Caucasian, or African-American. We did this sampling not in an exclusionary way, but out of respect for the diversity that is America, and to help illustrate that the concept of race has no genetic or scientific basis. In the five Solera genomes, there's no way to tell one ethnicity from one another. Society and medicine treats us all as members of populations, whereas individuals, we are all unique, and population statistics do not apply. So race could have, and perhaps should have, disappeared as a biological entity, right? So what did the Human Genome Project even find about the race concept? Was it, in fact, finally proven, as constructivists hoped, that race was non-biological? Yes and no. <laughs> as, as with almost every answer to every scientific question, when you answer one, you pose many others. But the hope was that maybe race would disappear as a biological entity. Did it? Of course it didn't, because we still have ongoing ideas about race as biology. It, it, it is part of our, I think that's part of our DNA. <laughs> there was a, a brief honeymoon period after the announcement and the publication of the first drafts of the human genome of about a year and a half when people really were saying race is dead, biological race is dead. Uh, and then things started to shift back onto the biological side, just like it has throughout history since we started developing this concept. People started to move back to using the newest technology to express their ideas about biological race. So the pendulum swung back. Yeah. There was a number of articles published by racial essentialists, people who believe that race is a fundamental biological property and it's expressed in humans. And one of the key pieces of evidence that bolstered the idea of these racial essentialists was an article that was published in the journal Science in December of 2002 called The Genetic Structure of Human Populations. Okay, so you're telling me that we have this multi-billion dollar project. We have the president getting up in, on television and actually saying, hey, there is no such thing for race. Are you about to tell me that one article changes that entire tenor? Kind of. <laughs> if you think of how it was portrayed in major newspapers across the country, like the New York Times. It how was it? Well, it was portrayed as validating 
the five race concept that that is embodied in the U.S. Census, which is also a a little fun fact. Uh, that had just changed as of October 1997 from being a four race census uh, categories to five races. Now they were finding five races in 2002 instead of four that we would have had earlier. Lo and behold, actually, in this article, they bolster the case both of the essentialists and of the cultural constructivists for race, those that are for biological race and those that are against biological race, because they report statistical testing from two different families of statistics. Hmm. One is the idea of diversity partitioning, and this is a horrible term, and, and I don't mean to disappoint anybody by using jargon, but what this does is it tries to take the level of genetic variation that exists in whatever groups we're examining and tell us how much of that is due to variability between individuals within local populations, how much of it is due to variability between local populations, and then how much is due to race or continental differences between human groups. This diversity partitioning first uh, came about in 1972. It was portrayed by uh, Richard Lewinton in his seminal work where he made the point that race accounts for a very small percentage of human genetic variation, that most genetic variation occurs within local populations. So when we talk about, as we do in the classes that we teach these days, when we talk about um, the idea that there's more genetic variation within populations than there is between them, we're talking about diversity partitioning. So... Local populations account for over 90% of the genetic variation, and races account for about 4 to 5% of the genetic variation in humans. And I make the point that that's in humans because it's different in every species depending upon the evolutionary history of the species. Okay, so that's, cool. that's diversity partitioning. And in this article, they actually reported out exactly those statistics where they say that uh, local populations account for something like 93% of the variation, and races account for something like 4% of the genetic variation. Unfortunately, that was not the statistical technique that was captured and reported by the lay press. Instead, the New York Times, the L.A. Times, major newspapers all over the country and all over the world instead reported another type of statistical analysis which falls into a family known as cluster analysis. The family of statistical techniques known as cluster analysis tries to join individuals together based on their degree of similarity. But I'm going to guess that the cluster analysis, when somebody in the popular press picks it up, is going to look like it maps onto our already standing racial categories. Is that basically what happened? That's exactly what happened, and Nicholas Wade was perhaps the worst at doing this. He was the science editor for the New York Times, and he had a huge headline calling out the genetic testing, reconstructing the five census categories of races. The geneticists in the 2002 science article used a technique called structure, which is an interesting technique. One of the things that you have to do with this particular procedure is you have to tell it how many clusters to break the sample up into. Did they go for five? Yes, they went for five. <laughs> in fact, they, they went for every value between two and 20. 
Huh. And not only that, they made 10 different runs because this is a technique where you match individuals in different ways. And so what they have is 10 runs at 2, 10 runs at 3, all the way up to 10 runs at 20. Now, they didn't report any of the runs above 6 in the article, which is awesome. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Why didn't they do that? Why? Well, one of the reasons is because statistically the most likely solution that they came up with was 16 clusters. And that, words, didn't, that didn't fit anybody's pre-expectations. They found 16 clusters that could have been 16 quote-unquote races, but they didn't report that because nobody at the time thought 16 races made sense. Is that but what you're saying? They hid those results. This is more cultural construction than I think Morton got into in, in terms of interpreting his data. Interestingly enough, everybody seized on the five-cluster solution because we had, at that point in time, five racial groups represented in the U.S. Census. Now, the five groups that they actually divided it up, up into don't really map onto the five races the way that the Office of Management and Budget has defined them for the census. But there was five, so it was close enough for science, okay? What? Yeah, what? <laughs> You're the, kidding. No, this, uh, hey, you don't want to see sausage made, you don't want to see science made. <laughs> which brings me to the fact that we have a companion podcast called The Sausage of Science, which you should check out <laughs> in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Alabama. Dr. Chris Lynn and Dr. Kara Ockebach run that one. So 16 clusters was the most statistically significant solution but everybody was interested in the five cluster solution because of racial groups but those five groups didn't map on to racial groups didn't map on to the five census races no and of course they weren't even reported in the abstract of the article the abstract of the article reports the six cluster solution because that is statistically more significant than the five cluster solutions so what did the New York Times have to say about this? That the geneticists find that the five races map perfectly onto human genetic variation. So this is merely an example of popular media completely misrepresenting scientific findings. Not just popular media. The evolutionary biologist Jerry Coyne is still using this exact example to bolster his argument for genetic races. And, and am I right in remembering that Nicholas Wade then put out a book just a couple years ago called A Troublesome Inheritance that was also essentially repeating the same argument, but in a book form? Yes, and five authors published a page-large letter in the New York Times refuting the use of that study the way that Wade used it in A Troublesome Inheritance. Okay, so we have these two different statistical families, ways of looking at data, why do we privilege one over the other? It's clear why people like Nicholas Wade and Jerry Coyne have privileged uh, the clustering technique because it bolsters their preconceived ideas about the, the biological reality of races. In point of fact, though, the diversity partitioning actually tells us how important these different groups are, the, the, varia the genetic variation that occurs in these different groups. It uniformly says over the last 45 years that the genetic differences within populations are significantly greater than that between races, the differences between races. And 
that's why diversity partitioning is the right way to look at this, ge this genetic data because we can cluster it at any level of uh, specificity and we can determine how many clusters we want to break people up into and what variables we want to look at and we can be as, as specific as we want to with, uh, with the clustering techniques it's only the diversity partitioning that tells us what that actually means. And so that's why people like me focus on that. I pulled that table out of that article and presented it in my race class starting in spring of 2003 to use to illustrate the importance of diversity partitioning and how little race accounted for genetic variability in humans. Dang, so th this feels like a good idea gone wrong. This article could have been a watershed article for the non-biological nature of race, but people just totally missed the boat. Yes. When you have these two families of statistics that come to seemingly different conclusions, they don't, but it seems to the layman that they come to different conclusions about the biological reality of race. If you have a predisposition to believe in biological race, you grab the clusters and you don't look back. Yeah and you grab the five cluster solution because it's after the 2000 census and we had five races then. Coming out of this, there were also all kinds of attempts to associate gen genetic variation with a host of behavioral characteristics. Right, so as part of the promise that came out along with the Human Genome Project, this idea that genes were gonna be the key to our understanding all of human existence, there was this huge explosion, and I would say it continues into the present, of what um, Richard Lewinton refers to as gene four studies, or behavioral genetic studies, studies that were looking to find the gene for fill in the blank, right? And so there was this data mining, you might say, of the human genome once it was sequenced to try to find the genes that could tell us that you had a predisposition for intelligence or aggression or any number of things, right? Yeah, so I have a, a good story, I think, about how this search for a gene for basically every kind of trait then overlaps with some of the race stuff that we're talking about. So um, back in the 1970s, there was a committee on the genetic constitution of the X chromosome. And what does that even mean? I, I, these were molecular biologists who were attempting to map out the X chromosome and figure out what every piece of it ended up doing phenotypically. Um, so this was before the Human Genome Project. It's back in the 70s. But it's the same hope. It's that we could figure out what each little component of each chromosome uh, actually did. I think that work just kind of stumbles along for a while. But then in 1991, there's this interesting study that's put out by a number of German scientists who are part of this uh, committee for the Genetic Constitution of the X Chromosome. That study was called Gene for Nonspecific X-Linked Mental Retardation Maps in the Paracentromeric Region Phew. of the X Chromosome. Let's so what, translate that. What, I think what they're trying to do is they're just trying to figure out um, what different components on the X Chromosome do, and they ran into an interesting case. Uh, they, they found a large family in Germany uh, that had four generations, and in all of those four generations, they found anywhere from mild to pretty severe uh, mental handicaps. They found out that many of the men in the family specifically had speech delays, 
uh, were sometimes hyperactive or had other kinds of deviant behavior. And so this team of German scientists sort of zeroed in on these pieces of the X chromosome where they said, because in men, the X chromosome is not covered up by another X chromosome. Therefore, these traits that are X chromosome linked must be the things that are, that are giving um, the mental retardation is what they call it in this article. One of the, the genes that are, or I guess the alleles that are linked on this X chromosome, oh. it's the MAOA gene. So what they find is that it, uh, it either promotes or it can dampen the ability of neurons to uptake dopamine and serotonin. And in most people, it it's just it doesn't really do very much of anything. But they found out in, in some individuals, uh, they have a defect in the MAOA such that their ability to uptake serotonin and dopamine is, is lessened, sometimes pretty substantially. Two years later, a, a team of Dutch researchers go back and they are also looking at um, family studies in the abstract to an article that they published in Science, so it gets a lot of gets a lot of looks. Um, they say that uh, genetic and metabolic studies have been done on a large kindred in which several males are affected by a syndrome of borderline mental retardation. These are their terms and abnormal behavior. The types of behavior that occurred are are pretty extreme, and this is one of the things that differentiates this from the German study. Uh, the men in this family have been convicted for arson, attempted rape, and then exhibitionism in public places. And that is what gets um, all the attention. In this case, they're not necessarily looking at uh, mental disorders the way that the German study was looking at. They're actually looking at um, behavioral disorders that show up as these extreme negative uh, behaviors. So that's in 1993. So then MAOA is suddenly something people are thinking about as a gene for deviant behavior, whatever it might be, in this case, aggressive behavior. Yeah, that's right. It's, so, it's kind of funny. It's, it just so happens that 1993 is also the moment in which people begin talking about this phenomena of super predators among minority youth in the United States. In fact, in 1996, famously, um, First Lady Hillary Clinton mentions this term super predators which comes from a study done by a, a political scientist. Again, it's not necessarily related to the MAOA stuff, but it all gets taken up by the popular press as, hey, there are these people out there that have this gene for being hyper-aggressive. And, so and it you, turns them into total sociopaths who have to be brought to heel, as Hillary Clinton said in that speech. Exactly. Which sounds really scary, right? Yes, it does. And people thought this was fascinating. Totally fascinating, and that it was supposed to explain hyper-aggressive male behavior. In 2004, this gene, MAOA, is given a, another popular name. It's called the warrior gene. The warrior gene. That sounds really intense. It sounds really intense. People love this stuff. Uh, an anthropologist, Tim Newman, who's at the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism in Maryland, actually indicates that this gene may have given some sort of advantage, not just to humans, but to, to prehuman ancestors. And, and that's why we, in fact, see it in some primates. But he gives it an evolutionary spin. He says that bold, aggressive males might have been quicker to catch prey or detect threats. And so this gene must have spread through 
all of us. It must be just in the male population. And I think up to 2009, um, the MAOA studies are going on, but no one has made them um, explicitly connected with race at all. But, and I think this is an important but, this, all this work in MAOA is going on alongside of another set of work that had been going on since the 1970s in trying to figure out why usually men who are abused as children sometimes become abusers and have other deviant behaviors when they grow up, but sometimes they don't. And the study in the 70s basically is saying, and it's repeated actually through the 1990s, says something like, we can't account for all these differences just through um, the ordinary kind of environmental effects. There must be something else. So it's in the late 2000s that people start to say, oh, well, that thing that accounts for the difference must be the MAOA gene. It must be that men who are abused as boys and have an MAOA deficiency because of this particular allele of the gene those are the ones that turn out to be abusers. And then abusers gets turned into hyper-aggressive. The reason why they're abusers is because they're hyper-aggressive. Because the they're that, super predators. Right, and that, that term floats around too. And then a study comes out in 2011. And looking for the answer again of why certain people who are abused do not become abusers themselves. And it says that whites who do not have a history of physical abuse can have their behavior regulated by MAOA. So it makes this explicit racial connection in the study. But interestingly, it's a negative uh, result. It's saying that we don't have any evidence that this does this in populations of whites. Almost immediately, that study is taken up by blogs and other places on internet. And it says things like, hey, did you know that black people are really aggressive because they have the MAOA gene? Another so, example of a scientific finding that would support the non-genetic nature of racial distinctions, in this case, behavioral distinctions around aggression, getting completely twisted in popular media. As many of the Gene 4 studies faltered, including the MAOA study, Right? It became apparent, once again, post-calm-down period after the release of the Human Genome Project, which has been going on for the last 15 years, we're finally beginning to realize that, well, heck, unlocking the human genome did not actually unlock all of the secrets of humanity and our behavior and our proclivities, et cetera, et cetera, right? You still hear people all the time say, gene for blah, blah, blah. We began to realize, right, that genes weren't going to tell us everything. And yet there's still this perception in popular parlance, even in sort of everyday conversation in the United States about having genes for things. Well, and there's also very common perception that uh, there are racial differences in those genes for. For instance, a, a very recent survey was done where most people believe that there's relatively little genetic impact on behavior but whites in the U.S. tend to believe there's more genetic influence on black behavior. So this is still racialized even as people are beginning to understand that maybe we're not explaining everything by sequencing the genome. Right. Interestingly enough, right, as we have realized that genes are not going to unlock all the secrets of humanity, some genomicists have moved towards studying epigenetics instead, which is, again, a whole other issue, something Eric knows a lot about. And in fact, you should read his book. 
It's called the Life Organic, and it traces the roots of epigenetics back to the 19th century and up through the 1930s. Is that right, Eric? I need money by my book. Anyway, the point is we're still sort of looking for the key that unlocks all of human variation. And epigenetics, very briefly, is the study of how genes get turned on and turned off in our genomes, right? So once we realized that the DNA wasn't going to be the script that told us all about humanity, we're now sort of looking to the things that turn the DNA on and off as perhaps the script that will tell us all about humanity. And epigenetic research is very hot right now. So where does this leave us now? Well, the genomicists have, for the most part, abandoned the term race. They talk about either clusters, but more likely you're going to hear them refer to DNA sequencing in terms of ancestry. And ancestry is another huge genetic kettle of fish that has very strong racial overtones. So thanks for listening. We wanted to make the point that the American Anthropological Association annual meeting is coming up at the end of November. It's November 29th through December 3rd in Washington, D.C. And the theme is Anthropology Matters! Exclamation point. Jim, you want to give us your little uh, thing on that? And if anthropology really did matter, maybe the biologists would listen to the last 150 years we've been studying race and pay a little bit more attention when they come up with their biological explanations. Ooh, snap! That was a sick burn. (laughs) Anyway, I'm Joe Weaver, the cultural anthropologist. I'm Eric Peterson, the historian of science. And I'm Jim Binden, and thank you for listening to Speaking of Race. Our next episode will be my 70th birthday party. Woohoo! Woo! Yeah, and I hope you'll join us. We'd love it if you liked our Facebook page, and if you'd leave us a comment, we would love to hear from you to find out uh, ideas for future episodes. Mm-hmm.